Hello, and welcome to the Homeland Podcast. Step out to find out it's wet and warm, wet and warm. Tra-la-la, 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 tra-la-la. have a real problem in our society in that we tell the public that the only way you can end homelessness is by building housing. And as true as that is, as much as we need housing, you and I can't build the housing necessary to make that happen. So what we tell the general public is the way we end homelessness is something that you can't do. So we're consistently have this driven into our heads that this is a problem bigger than you, that this is something well outside the scope of your capacity, but that's not true. You do have the ability to do something. I'm Bryce Merriman, and you're listening to the Homeland Lab podcast. Technology has revolutionized just about every aspect of our existence over the last two decades. Now tech and human services providers are working together to develop new ways to quickly move people out of homelessness by connecting unhoused individuals with donations and services. WeCount has built one of those bridges, connecting online giving with real-world needs within your local community. To learn more, I sat down with their executive director, Graham Pruss. To begin my conversation, I asked Graham who the we was in We Count. It's everyone. Honestly, it's all of us. It's it's uh, it, We Count is less of a name than an imperative. It's really saying that we we all count. Uh, uh, I had experienced homelessness as a teenager. Uh, I had my son when I was eighteen. Uh, I got off the streets because somebody had reached out to help me when I needed it. Um, but it really, you know, it wasn't the quarter that the person offered me to call my parents. It really was the uh, the connection that I was able to get with my parents and the the resources they were able to provide. And uh, when I had my son when I was eighteen, the um, the uh, aid for family for aid for families with dependent children welfare at the time uh, helped me to get on my feet helped me to pay for the medical expenses of, of uh, as a young family um, and had, it helped me to get a, a career um, the uh, dot-com boom and bust that happened in 10 years later uh, I rode that wave and unfortunately with a lot of other people found myself unemployed uh, laid off and those similar ser- services helped me to reconnect with a, a, another career and help me continue my future and that's actually have now helped me to uh, uh, wrap up my PhD work at the University of Washington um, around vehicle residency and how people um, occupy public space living in vehicles, uh, how that uh, is constrained or affected by law, and uh, how that may uh, restrict people's access to uh, services that can end homelessness. So what does is, what is WeCount strive to do then? Yeah, so what WeCount really does is that it, it, is, it connects the general public with uh, it helps the general public connect people in need with services that end homelessness. Okay. Right. So what we do is that we are a platform where a person can ask for items they need, people can donate it to them, uh, and it all happens through social service agencies uh, that are specifically tailored, uh, or that we suggest that are specifically tailored to the needs of the individual. So when a person signs up for the system, uh, they fill out a very basic questionnaire that tells us, you know, they're a veteran, they're uh, over the age of 65, they have children traveling with, a, with them, they're looking for housing or maybe an emergency shelter or food. And um, when they ask for an item, we compare those needs with local services, with the eligibility requirements of local services, Mm -hmm. and suggest a location that actually matches the need of the individual for them to pick up the backpack or hot plate uh, that gets donated by their community. And then before they do, we help them to actually contact a social worker, set up an appointment with a professional to help end homelessness. So you you are... um 
kind of grafting onto an existing social service structure That's exactly right. and, and hoping to maybe create another porthole into okay. that structure. That's right. What we're trying to do is we're trying to kind of leverage the people power of our communities to become an extension of the social services in a sense of activating or empowering the general community, the general public, to be an outreach arm of the $70 million worth of social services funded in Seattle and King County. So if I am coming across someone who I see in my neighborhood, for example, on a day-to-day basis, mm-hmm. your platform would offer me a window into connecting into into this what can be somewhat opaque mm-hmm. system from, from the outside. Yeah, well, what it, what it does is that it actually, it more helps the, the person who is in need ask for the item okay, that they're asking okay. for. They can ask for it anonymously, confidentially. Uh, we have ads on news, on, on uh, I'm sorry, on, on buses. We have ads, uh, we do street outreach with people. We work with actual outreach providers and uh, nurses in emergency shelters and everything to help to um, uh uh, get the requests for these needs in our system and then a person can download the app and be able to see that JT needs a backpack in their area um, and in our we're actually building up our new system now where you can actually purchase that item through an Amazon wish list oh wow and okay. it delivers directly to JT at the downtown emergency services center and all JT has to do JT gets a message that their hot plate is now ready to pick up JT shows up and says my name's JT my birthday's March 10 and gets handed the, the item and that's it and, and in your in your hypothetical JT, JT can choose whether or not he or she wants to remain anonymous in okay. that transaction. They're always anonymous. They're so always it, anonymous. Yeah. So okay. all you ever so that's one of the, the things, and this is based on my own experience. Yeah, um, I don't want to hear with, about that. With homelessness as well as uh, years of outreach uh, and and working with um, outreach providers and social workers, is uh, right in the beginning we knew that we didn't want to we want to be very very careful about the safety and security of JT as well as the person who wants to give the item. So when we um, we we never show a person's name, their face, their location. You can't use the system to find out where someone is. Um, we don't even tell you where necessarily they're going to pick up the item at, right? What we do is we say, somebody needs this item in your area. This is what the item is. This is how much it costs. Click here to buy it for them. It. And because we're a 501c3, that donation goes through us, and mm-hmm. then we purchase the item, which means we can offer the donor an end-of-year itemized tax-deductible receipt. I see. Okay. So what was and what was it about either your experience or your experience when you were doing outreach that importance of anonymity kind of hit home for you? Well, I mean, a lot of it came to uh, working with lots of people who um, who made themselves non-anonymous, right? Who made themselves publicly visible in their in their poverty and their homelessness. Um, I ran a community meal under the Ballard Bridge here in Seattle for uh, for six years, and uh, we had you know hundreds upon hundreds of people coming through every single Sunday. We were there, and I would have people all the time show up that um, I would see their face on the internet on, on Facebook earlier, and I would see that oh they that they were asking for somebody had helped them ask for a backpack or a blanket or maybe a guitar or something mm-hmm. like that, and I would say oh you know hey JT you know I saw you on you know the internet hey I'm glad you were able to get your guitar and they would say you know that jerk put me on the internet and now my family knows that I was homeless and wow. what's that going to mean for me in the future and I would say, well, I mean, you let yourself be put on the internet, right? I mean, you know what you're doing, but the thing is that they didn't. And they, right. they, they, they did let themselves, they agreed to it, but they didn't have the full um, uh, understanding of what the, the, the long-term repercussions would be. Now, as we know, of course, the internet never forgets, right? And 10 years down the line, when that person's looking for a job, when that person's trying to rent a house, when that person is connecting with someone who might be a new lover, and that person, the new person looks and does an internet search on them and says, wait a minute, you were living on the streets in Seattle and all you could do was to ask for was a guitar, right? That 
can affect them with someone's relationship going forward. And as the purveyors of this technology, we see it as our responsibility to do that in a safe way. Right. And part of that is, is that, you know, when people are in dire need, they make dire choices and they will often put themselves out there in ways that they don't realize could hurt them. Mm -hmm. So what we do is we make sure that they don't hurt themselves in this way, but at the same time, still be able to tell a little bit of that story to the donor because people want to know who they're giving to. So you get to see that it's JT. You can see that JT is a veteran. You can see that JT is working uh, to to secure housing and, and food services. You can see that JT is traveling with children, but you don't see JT's picture. You don't know where JT's at. You don't know anything more than it's JT. Right. Right. Or even specifically where JT may be. You can see what services JT is working at, which is great because then it allows the donor to be able to say, you know what? I want to help anyone in my community. I want to help someone who's within five miles of me now. Or maybe I want to help somebody who's working specifically with the downtown emergency center who is a veteran or is a family looking for housing. Mm-hmm. I hadn't even considered that angle of it. But, you know, the fact that the Internet is this semi-public sphere yeah. that does live on forever, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's not transient. <laughs> it's right. That's right. Uh, it, 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 it is not nomadic. It's sedentary. Yeah. <laughs> it lives forever. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, and, and you mentioned that as a platform, is it a website? Is it an app? That's a great question. So um, the initial incarnation that we built in uh, June of 2016 was an app. It was a website. I'm sorry. Um, and it's still running. We've had over 1,600 people join. They've offered and requested 900 items. We collected 100 people, direct, connected 100 people directly with social services. Um, but and the reason why we built that as a website was because, well, many people don't have a smartphone, right? Mm-hmm. But up to 90% of people who are experiencing homelessness studies show uh, access to the internet through either a smartphone, through open Wi-Fi connections, or through library, emergency shelter, and day center uh, computer terminals, mm-hmm. right? Which are actually really all over the place. And mm-hmm. if you go into a lot of day centers, you'll see a computer bank there. So we built the website specifically to be able to be used anywhere. But it's also the website is uh, phone responsive. So if you pull up wecount.org on your phone, it looks like an app. Um, the new version that we're building, though, right now, we're, we're working with Google. We're also working with Amazon uh, to build our version 2 system. The version 2 system will be an app. And so we'll actually be able to do, like, push notifications. It'll be able to find a location that's nearby you based upon GPS locations. Um, all that kind of fun stuff that you can do with a native app that you can't do with a website. And, and because there's this technology adoption, even within the homeless community, which I think that the general observer would say... Really? People have, have cell phones? Right. Um, I, well, that's a stereotype I think we need to disrupt. Thank you. I, yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. well, I wanted you to talk about that, yeah. that issue because I think that that perception is out there. Yeah. I mean, you, you hear it in a national dialogue. Of of like, why are people using welfare money to oh, that's right. buy, buy cell well, phones? And I think we, we've heard it for years, you know, of, of the, the, the person who's on the corner with their dog and someone says, how come they have a dog when they can't even support themselves? And we don't think about what these, what these resources might do for that person. The dog offers a lot of other things beyond just being a dog. There's security, there's safety, there's warmth, all these sorts of things. But um, for a phone, you know, so um, in Seattle, uh, recent surveys have shown that up to that uh, 70% of people who are living in Seattle who are experiencing homelessness um, lived in Seattle in a home within the last five years. So these are people who've been priced out of their communities. These are often long-term residents of Seattle. Um, up to 30% of people are actually currently employed while they are living on the streets. And I believe it's something around 90% of people are actually looking for housing right now. So what that tells us is that this isn't sort of that, uh, the stereotype that we've always had of it being either the hobo army or it's the, you know, the, the transient veteran who's struggling with mental illness or it's the welfare queen. All of these people, while they are maybe out there and need help, 
don't necessarily reflect what the current face of, of homelessness is and within our within our society. A lot of what we're seeing now are people who've been priced out of their communities, people who um, who can't afford to live within the urban core where they find the jobs. And so the problem is, is that while the resources maintain within these urban cores, the housing is being pushed out farther and farther, the affordable housing is. So for a lot of the people that we're seeing, these are people who are either trying to maintain within their community, within the city, or they're trying to access the uh, economic success of the city, but in the only way of affordable housing they know, which is often living in public space. Sure. So um, from my research specifically works with people living in vehicles, and that's one of the things that I saw over and over in, in this was that um, a lot of times we're seeing, uh, you know, we're seeing youth and young adults who have uh, aged out of the foster care system, people who have exited incarceration, people who are uh, young families or even older families. Uh, often we're seeing children, single mothers, victims of domestic violence, of course, uh, also immigrants, refugees, um, people who have been um, destabilized in one sense or another, often through some sort of structural means. It's, it, it's often not personal, or at least the personal is sort of wrapped up mm -hmm. in this larger structural factors. And that these people are just like everybody else. I mean, they just like you and I, we use our phone to connect to the world, right? And, and that's how nowadays we access services. It's how we access our communities. And if you try to imagine, how would you navigate the world around you without your phone these days? Well, that's the same thing that goes through the mind of someone who's experiencing homelessness on the streets. And, and specifically for people who are under the age of 60, which is increasingly sure. the amount of the people who we're seeing. So sure. actually very much contrary to popular belief, many people who are on the streets, particularly younger people, absolutely have a smartphone. They absolutely or have access to the Internet and use it regularly. Well, it seems like you're you're grafting on to that notion that we all use our phones for of community building. Um, and I would think that for people who are experiencing homelessness, who may have, you know, unstable living situations, that that ability to be able to connect to people technologically That's right. is, you know, considerably more important than people who have a fixed address and a stable Absolutely. job and that sort it's of thing. It's the key. I mean, really, it's it's that it's like I said before, you know, it's the backpack doesn't end homelessness. The person does. The connection does. Right. It, it's it's. Um, you know, there's uh, one of my favorite pieces of classic literature or classic writing uh, uh, is Plato's uh, Phaedrus, right? He talks, uh, uh, Socrates talks about the the kind of the, the um, fallacy of writing, right? Of how writing and our communication tools are often used to bring us together. But in the end, they create these forms that aren't really real, right? They're not actually the connection and that it is discourse. It is the human connection between two people that creates new thought that really gets things done. Hmm. Right. And so I think that what it tells us is not that, oh, we should, you know, all writing is folly, right? We shouldn't have writing anymore because writing obviously is very effective and helpful, but it is to challenge us to think about how do these communication tools actually help us communicate? Right? Do they actually bring us closer or do they separate us further? Do they create sort of false realities which we can just say, oh, that's how I think it is and then I'm not really going to think more about it? Or do they actually bring us together to create synthesis, to build new things together and solve our problems? Right. Right? And that's really what we're trying to do with WeCount is to take it beyond just the static, hey, I have a need, yeah, I'm going to get it to you, to how do we actually use that to create the connection, to, to build the community? Mm -hmm. Have you received any, you know, just gobsmackingly surprising feedback from either donors, users, or, you know, you mentioned you're working with Amazon and Google mm -hmm. from the tech folks who are, who are uh, helping you develop the app. Like, yeah. what, what, are, what are some of those things that just the blinders have come off for people? Well, you know, I mean, I, it, it, 
that's a regular occurrence. I mean, that's the thing, honestly, doing this work and especially with with you know my background of, of experiencing homelessness as well as social services and working in outreach. I was an outreach provider for two years. I, you know, have worked from the whole spectrum of this. So I've I have a lot of understanding of what this looks like. Um, but most people don't, right? Most of us, we, you know, and, and we shouldn't necessarily. I mean, unless we work in these industries, why would we know those things? Um, but, you know, like, like you asked before about how many people use cell phones. If you ask, you know, uh, if you ask a, a homeless services provider, they're going to tell you that many of their clients have cell phones. I mean, that, that's a known thing. Or that they use the internet through their library. I mean, that's a known thing. Um, the fact that... Um, that there are so many uh, families experiencing homelessness or that the needs that we're seeing are very real needs. The fact that somebody, uh, the fact that uh, a woman might ask for a hundred, uh, a box of a hundred tampons right now, a lot of men, because it's not necessarily what we're thinking about or going, oh, well, you know, that might not be as much of an issue. Of course, it's a big issue, but that um, in particular, certain things like hygiene uh, are, are very difficult to maintain when someone's living on the streets. And when we start to sort of put ourselves in the perspective of what it means to live on the streets, we start to see that, you know, it's, it's, it, that that person really is like us, right? It's not just, you know, the, you know, it could be your, your kid or it could be your brother. It could be you. And that, 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 that old saying of we're all one paycheck away, right? Is it's more than that. It's not just that we're one paycheck away. It's that the paycheck that we receive now is part of the issue. The fact that you and I and the people working at Google and all of our other volunteers are engaged in the, the economic success of our community, there are people who are not, right? And that, that that same set of wealth is not shared equally in the access to those resources among other people on those streets. And that what we see is, is that many of these people are, you know, they've lived in our community for years. They absolutely want help. They they they. They may have fallen upon substance use often went after they have entered into homelessness because of the incredibly traumatic environment that they have to experience. That a lot of the kind of stereotypes that we've been raised with around homelessness are totally not true or they're much more um, causal. You know what I mean? To <laughs> say that they're actually they're much more uh, right of boom to use that, that military term that actually it's, it happens after the event of homelessness and then these problems begin to happen. That That sort of thing I think tells us that um, that we, our success, uh, is part of a system in which there are other people who don't have that success and that we can be part of changing that system. We can change that narrative. We can disrupt um, inequalities. Right. The app and the platform is, is one side of things. Mm -hmm. I think the reason why I got connected with you guys is because I was walking down the street and I saw a blue box on the corner that said something like, have socks, give them, mm -hmm. need socks, take them. Something right. along those lines. That's right. Uh, and I said, we count. That's I right. Started, you know, made some friends, made some calls, figured out who we count was. Mm -hmm. um, what is that box all about, and why is it important? Yeah, thanks. <laughs> I, I, I'm glad you asked. So, uh, so that's what we call the box of socks, um, the box of socks program, or boxes of socks. Um, we in started. We installed them um, just about a year ago in October of um, of uh, 2016. Um, they are a way for people to get access to socks 24-7. It's a way for the community to donate directly to people in need on their street corner. Uh, we engage corporate uh, donations uh, as well as they do sock drives at uh, the city of Bainbridge. Actually does a sock drive for the uh, box of socks that's in front of the ferry terminal. Mm -hmm. uh, we have different schools across the area and churches and faith-based organizations that do sock drives. Um, we and also, why are socks important? So socks are the number one, often I should 
shouldn't say not just necessarily, but they're often the number one requested resource at emergency shelters um, and often the least available because of the high level of need. Um, for people who are experiencing homelessness, particularly in Seattle, where, as we know, we get about nine months of rain or at least gray skies, um, socks are often a single day use kind of item, if not several a day that you have to go through. It's really un not uncommon to see someone go through two or three pairs a day because, of course, if you live your life in your shoes, your shoes break down. You get cracks in them. You know, they, they become less resistant to the rain. Um, and, and of course, when that rain seeps into the shoes, it gets into the, the shoes, it gets into the socks, which can cause foot rot. It can cause black foot and cut all these different... Um, uh, really unfortunate conditions that uh, are really, I shouldn't say unfortunate, it's much worse than that. They are, are critically uh, endangering and they are dis uh, disabling. Um, so much that often it can can uh, make it more difficult for a person to get into services to help them further, to get into mm. medical services, to even help with their feet. Mm. Uh, the amount of times during my outreach that I saw people imprisoned effectively inside a vehicle or a tent or under a bridge mm. because they couldn't walk to get help for their feet, mm. right? I, I can't tell you how many times I've seen that. And um, and it really comes down to just being able to have safe feet, safe, clean socks, right? Safe socks, that's a weird way to say that. But you know what I mean? Like clean socks that really help someone now. And, you know, given that high level of need, given how easy it is to give someone socks, we thought, well, and one of the things we saw actually in our week out system was we had all these requests coming through for socks and was like, well, how can we even meet this demand when, mm. you know, in our in our original system, because of, it was used items, um, even though someone might give someone a bag of socks, still, you know, there might be a week or something in the lag between them requesting it and getting it. Sure. Our new system is much faster. It's within a day or two, you get the item. Um, but in that initial one, we went, well, we're not being able to meet this demand. How do we both get those socks to someone when they need them at 3 a.m.? in Pioneer Square when they really need them and there's nowhere to get them. There's no shelter open to get them at that time. And how do we enable the community to be part of that, right? Because it's really fun. It's really cool. And it's really great knowing that you actually made a real difference in someone's life right now. And so we just said, you know what, let's just Let's put a bunch of boxes of socks out on the streets. And so we drove around at midnight until 6 a.m. on one Friday night and just did gorilla installed all these boxes all over the streets and worried about getting our permit later, which we have <laughs> since done. Uh, one of those more uh, uh, ask for uh, forgiveness rather than permission type things. Um, but uh, but we were able to, we got them out there. And uh, and ever since then, it's, it's, it's just really taken off. We've had... Um, like I said, we've had communities, uh, cities actually take on uh, funding certain... Or, or, uh, uh, keeping certain boxes filled. Um, we've had uh, uh, Slalom Consulting has is now uh, takes care of the box that's down uh, in Pioneer Square. Uh, we have uh, Bombas Socks, which does a, a buy one, give one sock program. Hmm. Um, they produce socks specifically for people who are living on the streets. They're dark colored, so they don't get dirty as quickly. Uh, they're made with reinforced seams and antimicrobial fabric. They've donated around 10,000 pairs of socks to us wow. so far through the last year. Uh, Hanes just contacted us last week and said that they want to partner with us as well. So they're sending 2,500 pairs of socks over Fantastic. and a bunch of underwear. Um, and we're looking to actually expand the, pro the, the Box of Socks program in New York City as well as Philadelphia. Well, great. That was actually a perfect segue because, you know, I look on the website right now and it looks very Seattle specific. What's what's the scale up? What's what's how do we how do we grow this? Yeah. Well, so so um, the Box of Socks program in a lot of ways is our sort of outreach around We Count. It's a way of kind of getting people to know about this. So um, but as it's 
kind of taken on legs of its own. Uh, we've had different people that are looking to start it in other areas. Um, if anyone is interested, they can find out more information at boxofsocks.org. That's B-O-X-O-F-S-O-X.org, <laughs> not S-O-C-K-S. Um, and, uh, and, and so they can learn more about how to, how to sign up for it, how we do it in other areas. We do something, you can adopt a box, you can build a box, or you can sponsor a box. So wow. we have local boxes. We actually already have them installed. People can help to take care of them. We have uh, decals that if somebody in another city wants to get their own newspaper paper boxes and spray paint them up, we can get decals to make them into their own box of socks. Um, or we can actually drop ship a fully labeled box to a street corner anywhere. All the people have to do is work, you know, worry about the permits on it. And we can even work with our, our current partners to deliver socks to that organization so that they can receive, say, 250 pairs of socks a month right at the reception, and then they just go out there and fill them up. Fantastic. I want to pivot now back to what you said you're, you're working on in your doctoral work, mm -hmm. um, which is which is the RV encampment. Vehicle issue. residency. Vehicle residency. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. um, Obviously a hot topic mm -hmm. in Seattle right now, uh, a, probably a, a hot topic across the country. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned some of the populations that you're finding in your research that are living there. What are they saying about the public conversation that is happening around it? Because a lot of that conversation has gotten pretty ugly. It really has. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's a really interesting um, group of people to work with because... One of the things that I've I've come to realize even more and more of working this, and I'm actually writing all this up right now about this, is <coughs> excuse me, is that um, for many of these people, these vehicles are a home. They do not consider themselves homeless, mm -hmm. and that is a big deal because um, it means that uh, they don't often go for or uh, they don't they don't seek out and they don't accept homeless services mm. because they don't identify themselves as homeless. It also means that uh, among the unsheltered or unhoused community that are living on streets, uh, they don't see themselves as part of that same group a lot of times. So there's a lot of um, division among people on the streets that already there is just and I would say that in any kind of social circle, you're going to see that, of course. But um, already based upon sort of the living conditions of people who are on the streets, they often will set themselves into a social hierarchy. And people who are in vehicles are often very much at the top of that hierarchy or near, depending upon the group, of course. Um, that's one of the things that we've seen is that, or, is that uh, these are people who um, utilize mobile living as a survival strategy that for them this is a form of affordable housing mm -hmm. many of these people are working they see themselves as members of the community as actively engaged in the city and yet at the same time they are consistently discriminated against and uh, find their their vehicles subject to tickets to fines and of, of course impound um, those tickets fines and and the, the constant fear of impound has a really significant effect on the person so what happens is is that there's two main outcomes of this um, the first is is a criminalization of the vehicle, right? So the vehicle itself is seen as sort of an aberrant form of shelter, right? Because of the fact that we live within these uh, sedentary norms of what housing looks like, and housing is you know four rooms and a roof, right? right basically, that we have a very and surrounded by people who also agree that it's four rooms. Exactly right. Well, and and that's part of it is that we live under this sedentary set of norms, what Robbie McVeigh called a sedentarist hegemony, right? This idea that um, the 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 success that we hold is built on sedentary stability, that that's normal, and that we should all ascribe to that 
ideal. Well, that's something that's taught to us. And while, of course, it works very well for the world we see around us, we don't want this all smashed anytime now. We like this world. I love my cell phone. Um, <laughs> at the same time, um, that is sort of a, a constructed thing, right? It's not necessarily, that's not the way it is necessarily the natural world. And the natural world is much more catastrophic. There's a lot more emergencies. There's a lot more dealing with um, environmental changes that we have to, you know, um, uh, pivot around. And, and so what, what happens is, is that the um, we, as members of the sedentary world, kind of see that a normal house means this. And so when we see someone who lives in this nomadic shelter, we often we project them as the outsider. They're not they're they're, they're the bad guy. They're they're not from around here. They're probably the gypsy or the circus freak or whatever it is that's come to town to take your kids away, right? And it's that that same discrimination and bias ripples throughout time for a good for for the same reason, right? Because these cities that we live in say this is what is right, and if you're not living in this sort of sedentary life way, then you're wrong, right. right? And so what happens is though, is that, so we've got people who are who are relying upon these mobile nomadic behaviors to survive. They often see themselves as sedentary. They don't see themselves as nomadic. They're, they're not nomadic, really. They're, they're sedentary people. They're just like you and I, they were raised in these same ideals, but because of the fact that they're occupying this nomadic shelter, that nomadic shelter is denied its propriety of home, it's never allowed to actually be acceptable, right? And its occupant is always positioned as the bad guy, the mm -hmm. other, right? And so that's what we see is that over and over and over again, there are people who are absolutely your neighbor, right? I mean, literally, they lived in the community up until a year or two ago. Now they're living in their RV and suddenly they're being painted with this brush of being, you know, meth fiends and they're, you know, rolling meth labs and all, you know, there's sexual abuse and all these sorts of horrible crimes that may not actually be present in this community, but is painted on this community because they're mobile, right? right? And so, so the first piece is that this criminalization that occurs around the actual vehicle itself, because um, it is, it, we, again, we don't allow it to be a home. We, we see it on the streets and we want to basically, there's this uh, drive to get rid of these vehicles. And a lot of what you were talking before um, uh, about the sort of contention around RVs right now is focused on that, right? And specifically in Seattle. Um, and it comes to, uh, you know, they, they, you know, the, there's a, a use of signs that people put up to drive people out of areas. No parking 2 to 5 a.m. signs are a big one. Um, the use of uh, particular tickets or ordinances um, in Seattle. All vehicles that are over 80 inches wide must park in industrial zones between midnight and 5 a.m. Mm. This is why you see all the RVs in the Southern Industrial District or in Ballard's Industrial Area, but mm. not on other streets. Mm -hmm. That's because it's legally, they have to be there. Um, and then all of that ends up creating this system where these compounding tickets, and then there's the scoff law thing. I don't know if you're familiar with this, mm. but if you get if you get uh, three or more tickets that go into collections, you can have a boot put on your car, which immobilizes the vehicle. So, um, and then there's always this threat of impound, right? Because at a certain point, they're just going to take your car away. So because of this, um, the, the compounding set of tickets can then make it so that you don't get registration, right? Because that's Washington state law, which then means that you start getting even more tickets compiling on the vehicle. And what happens is, is that the, the individual who has invested a huge amount of capital as well as time and, and energy and sees this huge value in this vehicle too as shelter as safety and security and holding their property um that person doesn't want to lose their vehicle of course 
right? Well, because there's all these tickets on the vehicle and they know that there's a looming impound on the vehicle, it means they can't leave the vehicle because the moment they step away, they could lose all their property. Mm. Well, how do we connect that person who is isolated out in the middle of nowhere in South, South Seattle with social services that are located in downtown Seattle mm -hmm. when there's no parking space for that RV, mm -hmm. right? And the moment they step out of it, they risk it being taken away. So what happens is, is that this population, because of this criminaliza criminalization, ends up getting isolated from social services, which leads to the second piece, which is disaffiliation, right? And it's that there's a uh, long held theories around homelessness of disaffiliation, and I'm not, not sure if you're familiar with this, but that where the longer that people experience homelessness, um, the uh, the longer they uh, are disaffiliated from their social support, initially from their family, from their friends, uh, the communities around them, and then even social services themselves. And that's what we see with these vehicle residents is that in Seattle, 42% of people who live on the streets live in a vehicle. Okay, so almost half, I think it's 2,500 people across King County are living in vehicles, right, at least. There are virtually no parking spaces that are associated with emergency shelters, right? Mm -hmm. So if 42% of the population doesn't have a parking space to connect with the $70 million funded system, which is designed to end homelessness, how do we end homelessness for all people, right? And this, is, this kind of gets to my core issue of, my theory is, it's because of this idea of sedentarism and nomadism and the fact that we, we, even compassionate people, people who really want to do good, still look at the RV as not a home. And we, st we can't find a place for it within our housing systems, our emergency shelter systems, because we want to push it away, yeah. right? When the reality is, is that you've got 2,500 people who really, really need help. They want stability. They want nothing more than access to that system. But because of the way the system's built, it's a massive barrier to them. So you've obviously thought about this. What is a potential? Uh, what is a potential place within that system? So what the way I see it is actually so there is um, uh, a huge amount of overnight parking that's actually available within our cities, even within the downtown core. Mm -hmm. um, beyond uh, you know, there's the uh, massive uh, parking you know structures that are right next to city hall, often in many cities, which are not used after six p.m. Uh, there's hospitals, there's fire stations, there's police stations, there's park and ride lots. All throughout our communities, we have access to these overnight parking. And if we consider parking as a resource, as um, a common pool resource, right? Uh, Eleanor Ostrom talked a lot about this. And uh, if we think about these common pool resources as a community used resource that works just fine as long as it's not overused, right? Much like a, like a fishing stock Right. If you overuse it, the thing crashes. Right. But as long as you maintain that usage, you can sort of um, skim off the extra and be able to take that. Well, that's the same thing as parking. The right now we focus parking and we consider parking as daytime. That's what parking means. Well, there's another 12 hours of parking that's really never used. And the, really the issue is that most of the people need that stability when they're sleeping, right? It's at nighttime. And the fact that they need really connection to the emergency services. If we consider our emergency shelter programs, Many of them, the majority of them, are not all-day programs. They're not 24-7. They are 6 p.m. until 6 a.m. And once the person gets in, they talk, they talk to a social worker. They talk about other services they can work at. They start working that stuff before they go to bed at night and then wake up in the morning to start their process over again. We have nothing like that that even approximates that within our system. I think we need much more than that. I think we need actual long-term uh, solutions. And there's some ordinances now that talk about uh, like RV lots and stuff for people, or actually like a... Like a um, uh, a low-income RV uh, um, 
uh, park in a sense. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think what we need to think about is even larger than that. I think we need to say that if 2,500 people are experiencing homelessness or, or being unhoused and they don't see themselves as homeless in this way in their vehicle, then we need to seriously look at what it's going to take to provide a parking space that's directly connected with emergency services that we already fund. And the fact that we don't have that solution in place is not a reason to not have the solution in place, right? And the reality is, is that vehicle residents have represented at least 30% of people who live on the streets for over a decade. Okay, and there still has been almost no movement on this. I, I, as, as hard as it is to see the increasing number of articles about vehicle residency and people pushing back and all these, these issues, I'm really glad that it's finally coming to the forefront. Mm -hmm. I'm really glad that people are starting to realize that these people are out there and that they really need our help. And that as a matter of social practice, they have been separated from us. I had one person tell me once about seven years ago in an interview, they said, when you're sleeping in a car on the streets, it's really ironic because the world seems to move around you and you're staying in place. Even though you're living in this mobile world, mm -hmm. they're all active, but you're not. Mm -hmm. And that it feels like you're apart from the world, not a part of it. Of the world, yeah. Is there a model of social services that comes to those people? Well, there is in a sense. I mean, it's it's outreach, um, you know, and there is there are there's a safe parking program in Seattle. It's called the Road to Housing Program. I actually used to re outreach for it for two years, so I know it very well. Um, and uh, I helped, you know, hundreds of people connect with services. But even that program offers at most 50 parking spaces. Well, 50 parking spaces for 2,500 people is roughly one half a percent service coverage, right? So it, it, clearly that's nowhere near what we need. And this gets again to the point and what I saw from doing that outreach was Putting people in church parking lots is not necessarily the solution, right? Though they need help and they need a parking space, they need a connection to services that end homelessness, right? I mean, that's how we end homelessness, right? It's not just, you know, giving someone space for tonight. It's about long-term strategic structural solutions which can get the person into housing, get the person a job, and inspire intergenerational success. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that we haven't talked about about we count or about the? Um, I'm sorry, your term. Vehicle residency. Thank you, vehicle residency. <laughs> uh, that you wanted to talk about, and then I have a, one last concluding question. Um, you know, I think that it, if anything, it's just you know how these kind of these things all come together, right? That you know, um, you know, I've been doing this research for years, trying to trying to figure out better ways to help connect people who are in our communities with the resources in our communities and that over and over you know it was it becomes really easy to think that you know we need to reinvent the wheel that we think we know better than than what is actually happening on our streets and what i saw over and over was geez if you just ask people right now what's happening you get a much better understanding of what's happening right now right <laughs> instead of trying to think that we know better let's get in there and find out where are the issues happening? What are the ways that we can help to facilitate that and make it better? Let's not reinvent the wheel. Let's look at what are the assets that we have at our disposal as a community and find ways we can better leverage them to end these issues. In the end, um, we have a real problem in our society in that we tell the public that the only way you can end homelessness is by building housing. And as true as that is, as much as we need housing, you and I can't build the housing necessary to make that happen. So what we tell the general public is the way we end homelessness is something that you can't do.
So we're consistently have this driven into our heads that this is a problem bigger than you, that this is something well outside the scope of your capacity, but that's not true. You do have the ability to do something. And it's more than just giving the person the quarter or $5 on the street. It actually is helping people connect with services, $70 million of services that are designed to end homelessness. Those services need help. They need your help, they need my help. They need the help of businesses to help them with coding, with building websites, with donating socks, with all this sort of amazing stuff. I truly do believe that if we leverage the total economic success of our society, we can end issues of poverty and homelessness. Fantastic. So going back to your teenage years, yeah. when you were living on the streets, mm-hmm. what was what were some things that the people who design, who manage, who maintain, who enforce public space norms, mm. what were some things that they could have done to make, make public spaces more empathetic and welcoming to you? Mm. That's an interesting question. Um, you know, as, as a as a um, as a runaway teen, right, as homeless youth, uh, it, it's difficult to get into services and to feel like you're part of anything, right? Because you don't want to go to emergency shelters, right? You don't want to reach out because it's scary as heck, you know. And and often they're not necessarily places for you to be. I mean, I was 15. Right? There's not, not a place to go if you're 15. Um, for me, uh, I think that. Uh, well, and, and, and this was in the early 90s in the Bay Area, so things have changed as well. But there was no place for me to go, uh, to be completely honest. Um, at, th- that's changed a lot, and, and there's been a lot of improvements around that of pro- providing safe space for uh, youth and young adults who are experiencing homelessness. But um, when I was a kid, uh, you hung out on, you, you know, on University Avenue because that was the only place to hang out. You know, like you got loaded at night because that was the only way to go to sleep, you know, because you had no, you had to sleep under the bridge because there was no other place for you young adults to sleep. I mean, like the much as we see now, the choices that people are made are made with their environment, right? Made within an environment of choices. And my environment limited me to say, man, I I didn't have a lot of stuff I could do. I mean, I was, I slept in uh, punk rock clubs. I worked security at those places in order to so I could have a place to sleep at night. And, um, and you know, it was, I think that, that the, the main thing that I lacked was, um, a, a, a place during the day to find stability, to get some, some safe ground under my feet, to think about where I could be that night, to then think about where I'd be the next day. Mm. That if I don't know where I'm sleeping tonight, I don't know what my success is going to be tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Right. And, uh, and for me at the time that just didn't exist. So I, I think that, I mean, if there was one thing that I would say from my experiences, it is, and it always, and I think it's a theme throughout all my work, is safe space, right? That we need to provide people with stable, um, physical space for them to be able to occupy without fear <laughs> and and to actually get access to professional services. It's not just, hey, let me give you a spot for right now, right? But it actually is somebody who's going to come through and say, Hey, let me talk to you. Let me get you to talk to this person. Or I'm going to get you to work in the VA. Or I'm going to get you talking to your parents so that you can go home. Yeah. Oh, great. Thank you, Pam. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This podcast is part of the Homeland Project. We invite you to learn more about the project at homelandlab.com. 
Our work would not be possible without the support of MIG SVR and the Landscape Architecture Foundation's Innovation and Leadership Fellowship. To learn more about the tremendous work of LAF, please visit their website at lafoundation.org. Finally, we want to thank our friends at Yves for the use of their music. You can learn more about the band and find out about their debut album at thesoundofyves.com. Thank you.